Welcome to the latest episode of the Talking Adapted PE Podcast. I'm here with Kasha Givenrod. Kasha, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, so Kasha is our first West Coast guest. So I'm, I'm really pumped about that. She's Southern California like myself, although not too close to each other. But Kasha, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and what your job kind of looks like? I am an adapted PE specialist in Brea, California. So I'm in Orange County. Our school district is about 15 minutes away from Disneyland, if that gives the listeners a little geographic uh, landmark. We are a small district, so we have one high school, one junior high, and six elementary schools. I am the only full-time adapted PE teacher in our district. We also have a part-time teacher. but So I teach preschool all the way through high school. I've been teaching for 16 years. And the first six years of that were in general PE. And then the last 10 have been in adapted PE. What about the size of your caseload? Ooh, so I right now have, uh, I think I'm around 45 students on my caseload. And I travel to five schools. I'm at my junior high and my high school every day. And those are unified PE classes. So my caseload doesn't reflect all the gen ed kids I have. But adapted PE, I'm about 45 at five schools. So um, the majority of the students on my caseload, I would say probably 95% of my students are what we would call our life skills type students who I know we're kind of leaning away from these kind of labels, but they tend to be the most commonly still used, uh, more the moderate to severe impacted students. That's the labels my district uses, actually. And and I'm, I'm curious while we're on that, what is a what do you think an appropriate label would be? That's a great question. I would think maybe something that's labeling to what they can do, what abilities are. I just feel like mod to severe has more of a negative connotation. I think it should be, I don't know what would be the best way to do it, but I would like it to be something a bit more positive. One thing that I've started working into my vernacular, and I don't know if someone listening is much more educated on this than I am, but I I started, I have started personally identifying my kids as um, students with significant needs, you know, something like that, just to, to, what is their level of needs and if they have significant needs or they don't. Because I agree. I, I think I think when you're talking mild or moderate, those maybe don't sound too bad. But when you talk saying things like severe, right, it kind of paints a picture of maybe not the what they're capable of exactly to your point. You mentioned uh, in your when you were talking about yourself that your first six years were general PE and then you've slid into the adapted PE world. So what did your credentialing process look like? It was very unconventional, I think, compared to most. I went to school as a psychology major. I actually completed my bachelor's in psychology very quickly in three years. And so I had this extra year, but I had a couple of electives to take. I found intro to adapted physical education and I took that class, was hooked immediately. I had some background already because I had been volunteering since I had was 16 at a camp for adults and kids with disabilities and already knew that that was something I was passionate about. I was an athlete. So it was just all the perfect things came together when I took that class and I was hooked. Then I decided to take all the prereq classes through kinesiology to at least get to the point where I could enter the credential programs. Then I received both my single subject physical education credential And my, at the time, what was called the Adapted Physical Education Specialist Credential, because at the time that I received mine, it was not an add-on authorization yet. So I had four years for my undergrad, 
and one year for my two credentials that I got simultaneously. It does make our state unique that we have that adaptive PE credential. Not everyone has that. I know when I came across the country from New York with my master's degree, I actually had to send my transcripts up to Long Beach and get Long Beach to sign off and say, yeah, we accept this coursework. You're cleared for the credential. That does make us pretty unique though. And I think it makes us not to be, you know, not to fluff my feathers too much, But I do feel like when I look at the really, really specific adapted physical education coursework that I had to take, that was very rigorous. I studied at Cal Poly Pomona under Dr. Perky Better, and it was extremely rigorous, but I learned so much valuable information. We had the motor development clinic on campus, which was like an after-school motor development class that students in the area could sign up for. And so we got hands-on, really good practical experience teaching as well as part of that program. So I felt like when I came into teaching, I was really well-prepared. It's interesting. In San Diego, we only have one program right now, believe it or not. So I, my understanding is San Diego State used to have it, but we're down to one program. So that is Point Loma Nazarene. But I know a number of students are also going up into, uh, there's a school in Orange County near you, I think that offers it that I'm of course drawing a blank on, but you would think a major city like San Diego, we would have a and uh, uh, like a more than one credential program, we don't. It's made, it's made filling positions kind of interesting. Yeah, I do feel like there's, we're a niche population, right? Our profession in general is very small, tight-knit kind of group of specialists. And it's interesting that I feel like if we grew at the university level, we would have much more opportunity to grow our adapted PE programs everywhere. There wouldn't be such a, it wouldn't be so hard to find teachers to provide the services. You know, it's like, it's like that little snowball, the the issues, but I feel like at the university level, we could make a lot of changes if we had some bigger programs out there. Yeah, I think definitely, I think too, maybe we're programs are doing pre-service work within just a physical education degree or kinesiology degree, whatever you call it, if they offered that course of study and adapted. I know being a SUNY Brockport alum, I obviously had that. And I also know that just a few hours southeast of us is another SUNY school called SUNY Cortland. I think Tim Davis heads up the APENS exam, actually, and he's out of there. So we were unique that with just within a couple hour radius, we had a few schools that that were offering it. But I agree with you, it's not common. uh, and, And it seems that I just know of a school here or a school there that kind of has it quite honestly. Yeah, absolutely. So you brought up that you teach preschool through high school and I I would challenge any non-PE teacher listening to comprehend that for a second, just because my wife's a high school math teacher and I could never be it. I'm not saying that, but I mean, to teach from three until either 18 or 21, depending on your transition services, which I'm not familiar with. So let's, let's start at the beginning of your caseload and those preschoolers. How do they come to you? What's the assessment process look like? Kind of, kind of walk our listeners through that. In preschool, I'm I'm trying to work with my district on this one because we have found that there there are these little loopholes that happen with preschool because it is thought that adaptive PE is a service to modify for general PE, but there's no general PE in preschool. Therefore, do we need to be referring for adaptive PE services at three years old? Well, according to the law, yes, students are eligible. What we kind of try to do for our preschool students in our district is if they come to us with an already established gross motor need. So basically, if they already have some sort of like physical therapy services through regional centers or CCS or anything like that, 
then those students get referred to me for an adapted physical education assessment. Those students, I will be honest, are kind of few and far between. My caseload at the preschool level is pretty small. So I don't see a ton of students for an official referral, usually until they hit kindergarten, because at that stage, then they have PE, and then we know that they aren't able to be safe or successful, so then they refer for the assessment. One of the ways that I kind of work around that <laughs> preschool issue is I actually take all of the preschoolers for class, and I we call it early exposure to gross motor skills. And at preschool age, they learn through play anyways. I take all of the preschoolers, and I get to get them moving, and so at least they're able to access the activities, but I'm only documented on their IEPs if they have that established gross motor need when they enroll for their initial evaluation. That's that's really similar to what we do in San Diego. I think we're able to catch students a little earlier than you are because we will offer the service uh, through the assessment process, of course, but we will offer the service regardless of that mentality that they're not accessing physical education because, you said, as you said, legally, it's a service, so they are entitled to it. Now, once they're in kindergarten, and you go through an assessment process, what are some of the assessments you like to give? I know every case is different. I, I totally recognize that. But are, are there some you like to give? Are you well-versed in standardized assessments? What, what does it look like when you're at, let's take those kindergartners that you're like, oh, yeah, I, I definitely need to assess. I got to get this kid in. What does that look like? Yeah, um, I would say definitely for our younger students, the TGMD3 is my go-to. It's my favorite. I think it is in terms of ease of administration it's consistent with the scoring. It's really reliable. I, I really like that test. So I use the TGMD3 a lot. I use the CARE-R2 a lot. Now that's not technically a standardized test that's considered a criterion test, but it does provide some age equivalencies that are also helpful in determining needs. So those two are the ones that I prefer to use the most with my kids when they're younger. Have you played around with the DACI yet? That's one my department has just come into, and we have a lot of assessors that are fans of it, actually. You know what? I've heard a lot about that one more recently, and it's actually on my request list with my district right now to try and get access to that one because I have heard really good things. And I think that one of our school psychologists, I think, because it's more than just motor. And so mm -hmm. I want to say It could be a that... total comprehensive one if you wanted it to be. Yes, I think that was how it was brought up and introduced. And so um, I do think that we're going to be looking into adding that into our repertoire, if you will. <laughs> yeah, so a lot of our preschool, uh, and it, it actually goes older than that, but we, we're using it quite a bit at the pre preschool ranks because it gives you uh, a nice age equivalency. And then they're supplementing that with Louisiana Motor the LA map. I don't know if you're familiar mm -hmm. with that, but then, then they're providing additional information through the LA map. I've found that the standardized testing at the younger ages is, is great. It is For the most part, you can do it. There are, of course, kids where they can't access the test and you need to put in a statement in your report about why they can't access the test and you don't feel it's inaccurate or, or even fair, quite honestly, to try to hold them to that. And so you provide mm -hmm. other information. I get that. As a predominantly secondary teacher now, I struggle with standardized assessments in the secondary mm -hmm. area. Do you have any you like in the secondary area? So I use the bot too for my higher functioning students. That is a very long and challenging test. If you're giving- I think I would that, fail it, but- <laughs> It's really challenging. So yeah. I really can't give that one to a lot of my students. It really is one of the only standardized tests that goes up age-wise high enough for my high schoolers. There's the Brockport, which of course is a great option. I also 
when I did my master's through Cal Poly Pomona, my thesis was actually pilot testing a gross motor sports skills test for the secondary level that Dr. Perky Vetter was writing and creating. And it's published, but it's not standardized yet. Human kinetics has it as a criterion test at the moment. It has 10 sports skills and it's for our junior high, high school age students. So hopefully eventually down the road, we'll get another one that's standardized because I think. And what was the name of that? What was the name of that one? It's called the test of secondary TSBSS test of secondary basic sports skills. (laughs) <laughs> oh, we just bought, my department just bought it actually. So that's yes! why I thought it, yeah. So we just yeah. bought it to take a look at that. So we're, we're, we're dipping our toe. I haven't given it yet, to be honest, for everyone listening, but we did just buy it. Yeah, it's, it's a great option. I do feel like right now it's a great option for both general physical educators and adapted PE and um, for all kinds of different uses, but I think it'll really, really fill an area of need once it gets standardized. So I'm really hopeful that that's the next step. You brought it up. And what I've started doing is I give portions of the Brockport that I can. Obviously, mm-hmm. it aligns closely with the fitness gram if people listening mm-hmm. aren't as familiar with it. Um, and then I will fill in the rest with, you know, sports skills. It's like like a checklist of my own or my department has one that we've created. But there's just the C-tape. There's, there's a conversation to be had if it is or actually isn't standardized. I know that there's a conversation around that. And then the higher levels are just really hard on that, similar to the, the bot two that you mentioned. You know, we're talking setting a volleyball, helping a volleyball, this, that, and the next thing. So secondary is hard to, to really hone in on those assessments. It's really hard. And I think that when I look, so when I did my schooling, and I was getting my credential, you know, the one of the biggest classes we take is about assessments. So you learn all these different assessments. And one of the ones that I learned that I actually really liked isn't even in print anymore, but it's a criterion test and it's usable through almost the entire lifespan. It's called the MSI, the motor skills inventory. Hmm. And really it just evaluates their skills in three ways. It, they're either mature, functional, or rudimentary. And for me, especially looking at the students and their level of needs that I work with. It's a great even criterion test that I can use to kind of show growth and progress because I have my kids from the time they're three till the time they graduate. So I really can show growth and progress because I'm the one doing their testing every three years during their triennial. So stuff like that I like to use too, because sometimes the standardized testing with my population of students can be really hard and just not a good reflection of what they can do. It's more, oh, they scored really low. I don't like using those as much in meetings too, to really demonstrate their abilities. So I feel like criterion tests a lot of times are more helpful for that. Completely agree. My department uh, has created some of our own that are exactly what you've described as, you know, the functional or professional, you know, kind of scoring Mm -hmm. it that way. And and we've based them a little bit on the developmental motor milestones. Obviously those stop at a relatively young age, and then you can add in some more, some more age appropriate sports skills and whatnot. In San Diego Unified, when, when we look at an IEP, there's a spot on the front page for us to delineate the type of physical education they're getting, whether it's general mm-hmm. or whether it's adapted, and then it's it's adapted slash consult, collab, et cetera. And then we have a spot to list our how frequent the individual is getting the service. What does it look like for you? In my district, usually I we have the check the boxes too on one of our pages when it, when we talk about the offer of faith and it either general physical education, specially designed or adapted physical education. It doesn't delineate direct consult or collaborative on that part. You do that kind of in the service box. My students are typically only direct service or 
consult. That's usually how that works. And then obviously when we look at minutes and everything, it's based on need, but my student services are typically weekly. And I know that there's some changes in how everybody's kind of reflecting their minutes, whether it's monthly or yearly and things like that. We still do it weekly in Brea. And so like, for example, my high school students, it'll be 50 minutes, five times a week. And so, because I have them for a period every single day, that's kind of what ours looks like, but usually it's on the service box page where we have the adaptive PE services really delineated and whether it's direct or consult, things like that. And then there's a separate page for us that talks about what the PE setting is on the offer of fate. Isn't it so interesting? You get that new kid that comes to you, you're trying to, there's no uniformity to these documents that come from other <laughs> districts. We all use a different program. So a lot of people use a similar program, I suppose, but usually as San Diego Unified, it seems that we're three years behind and we're always using an outdated program. So districts are probably frustrated with us too, but <laughs> there's no uniformity to what an IEP looks like. Given that it's a federal document, it's, it's, it's a little bit surprising to me, but I guess it is what it is. I feel like that's reflective of almost everything. <laughs> that I've noticed it's there's lots of inconsistencies for a content in a class that's federally required there's a lot of differences in what that looks like which is really surprising whether it's the paperwork or how the services are delivered or how they're qualified things like that it's just really interesting to me to learn the more teachers I've met from different states how significantly different we all do things let's go into that a little bit and I have come to learn that I'll talk to another teacher that does adaptive PE and or let's actually maybe a better example is in another state where they don't have an adaptive PE credential it's a general PE teacher that also does what they do adaptive PE and they're like, oh, my adapted class. They refer to it as a class. And it seems as though it's a self-contained classroom that just comes and gets their services and they call it adapted with no real consideration that maybe kids in that class should be getting general PE. So what does it look like in Brea? Are you taking an entire class of kids regardless of that? Or it sounds like you, I mean, you obviously do standardized assessments and you qualify kids, but what does that, does it, does it look like that? Or is it a little bit of a blend of that? What's it look like? So it depends on the level. So at the preschool level, like I'd mentioned, I take all the students, whether or not they have services documented on their IEP. At the elementary level, I'm only taking the students that have services. So that means that when I have my, let's say it's a, class, a third through sixth grade classroom, and I'm going to pull the five that have services, and maybe the other three, they stay in with the teacher or they're going and doing other specials or things like that at that time. So I pull those students, but I also have those students later going to their general PE time as well. So my kids at the elementary level double dip. They get double the PE basically because they're coming to me for their pullout to really work towards their goals and try to make some progress there. But then they're also getting to go to their general PE time where they're really getting access to their gen ed peers and being able to work kind of in those bigger group games that I can't do in my small little groups. So I like that they get both. And then at the junior high and the high school level, the students that I have there, I created unified PE programs for. So the unified PE classes are where I'm actually teaching them. And the gen ed kids that sign up, they take it as an elective or PE credit at the high school. And it's only an elective at the junior high. 
And so they come in and they're all doing the class together. So even though those secondary students still have me for PE because we don't have the option to double dip because of the period schedules, I'm able to bring the gen ed kids to them by doing it in a unified PE model. So it kind of looks different depending on what age group I'm with, but that's kind of the general vibe. I do a similar sort of unified, I call it unified, but do you actually, are you able to accomplish the one-to-one student ratio that is desired in unified? Yes. That's awesome. Yes. We, I do a lot of, I don't want to call it recruiting because I'm also afraid that if I recruit too much, I'm going to have to turn down kids and that doesn't seem very inclusive (laughs) if I'm telling them no. I just make sure to really communicate with our counselors at our schools that these are the kinds of kids that would be a great fit. Let's see if we have any kids that want to change their schedules or are really interested in something like this. I recruit or I advertise through Best Buddies. Our Best Buddies Club helps mm-hmm. out a lot. And so we we kind of have found these little pockets that we can pull from that are really good resources for filling the class. Yeah. The, one, one of the best that I've had in terms of like type of student or maybe your students who traditionally don't love PE it hasn't maybe been a positive experience for them, or maybe they're, they've struggled to find where they fit socially on campus, that sort of thing. And I've had students that are willing to try something different and they, they just flourish quite honestly. And that's, what's been really fascinating to see. Absolutely. And I would even say that a lot of the students that I've had, and it's, it's always a mix, right? We get kind of a hodgepodge of kids that sign up for the class, which I kind of love because it brings a lot more variety and diversity to the class. But I've had several students in the past where sometimes they have to fill out an application. So the teachers have to sign off saying, yeah, this kid would be good. And I've had kids where the teachers won't sign because they don't recommend them because they have behavior issues or they're not really like consistently reliable on grades and getting assignments done. But the counselor will come to me and say, I think this kid needs it. I think this kid really needs this opportunity and this could be good for them. And those are the kids that do the best in unified PE because they find a class where they're comfortable and where they can shine and they can be helpful to somebody else. And it's a very accepting, safe class. You know, so I I love that Unified PE does that because it brings so much benefit to not just my adapted PE students, but to the gen ed kids as well. It's yeah, for anyone listening that maybe hasn't seen the model at work. And I know there, there are some detractors out there that are concerned. Are we actually meeting our kids needs and things like that? But I, I personally have just seen too much positive from it that I think you do have to weigh those pros and cons. But I, <laughs> I just know that I've seen too much positive come of it. 100%. And I will say this every moment I can, my students have never been more motivated to move their bodies than when they do it with their friends. I am, my kids have had me since they were three. So they're tired of me. They're tired of my voice. I am old and boring, but we bring in these peers and these mentor coaches into the mix. And it's like a whole new bright, shiny version of our class. And they're moving their bodies the whole time. It's really, really cool. Yeah. And then just, you know, people oftentimes point to LRE, right? Well, one of the things of LRE is that are there non-educational benefits to being in a general PE setting? And in this case, when I see kids saying hi to kids outside of class, then I'm like, all right, like we are checking a box here that is critically important to educating the whole child. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with that more. Now, goals, goals are funny to me. And I think I've said it on previous episodes. We we are required by law to write goals, but goals goals are just one thing and they're, they're hyper-specific, but we expose kids 
to an entire curriculum. So I think for another day, I'll go deep on, uh, I kind of let the rabbit out of the bag there that I think goals are kind of a little bit head scratching, but I'm curious if, um, do you have any unique ways that you track your goal progress that you stay organized? Do you have anything unique you're doing? Oh gosh. I feel like I flip flop so much and go back and forth between high tech and low tech goal tracking. I use a data sheet that I actually stole from a speech pathologist in my district because I really liked it. And I was using that and I was like, you know what? I have technology. I have Google and I have an iPad. I should be using this. So then I created all these Google forms to track my kids' goals and their and all their performance. And then I ran into all of these issues where I have nowhere inside to go. Our friends who don't live in California are probably like, what do you mean you don't have somewhere to go? We don't have gyms. We don't. And with the <laughs> lower only... levels anyways, we don't. Right. So the only school I have a gym for is my high school. My junior high doesn't have one. None of my elementaries have one. And most of my elementary schools don't have a multi-purpose room either or a cafeteria that's inside. So, you know, I'm not going to complain. We have wonderful weather that allows us to be outside most of the year. But when I want to use technology and Wi-Fi and I'm way across campus on the field, I can't access any of it. (laughs) So it becomes a real challenge for me. So I got tired of battling the technology piece of data tracking and I went back to the old school sheets. (laughs) So now I'm just using my own little check sheets and it's, it's not ideal, but it's working. I actually was just talking with a colleague, um, Sadie Brown, who teaches out in Wisconsin. She has this awesome system where she has on her calendar links to all of the Google forms for tracking her students' data on her calendar so that when she's at that site, she just clicks on it and goes. In my head, pie in the sky, that's what I'm doing next. And we'll see if I can make it work. <laughs> you know, the, the I you brought up being outside. It's I can't make my screen bright enough to see it, quite honestly, either, though. Like, I know, listen, first world of first world problems. I get that. <laughs> Let me own that up front. But I just... I can't see what I'm doing is the reality of it when I'm outdoors. Yeah. It's really challenging between the screen, between having internet access. If I didn't think to open all the things ahead of time before I got there, which when you travel to four schools in one day, my head's not always thinking two schools ahead. (laughs) And so it's, it's really hard. So sometimes going old school is the most reliable way for me. (laughs) I get it. We should probably acknowledge that people are saying, oh, listen to the Southern Californians complaining that they're outside 12 months of the year. And we have people in the middle of the country or the Northeast, hopefully tuning in that are like, we have six months of winter. So we really don't want to hear about you complaining. You can't see your screen. Big piece of teaching for us is visuals. And I know I feel like no matter how hard I plan ahead my lesson, I'm always like, oh, where's that one visual I need? Because like, it's a little bit like I'm just off. Like, I feel like with visuals, we just kind of generalize, right? It's hard to get them specific, maybe exactly what we're doing. They're just generalized like, oh, now it's the music part of our lesson or the warm up or whatever, whatever it might be. But do you do you have any hacks for visuals? Do you have a place you get them regularly? Can you direct the listeners to maybe some um, just kind of your best practices of visuals? So um, one of my best practices, to be honest, is I use my case carriers and my speech pathologists a lot. They tend to be much more informed on how to use the systems that they use for it. Um, And a lot of times they even already have established visual schedules. Or I can say, hey, can you add an icon for this on their visual schedule? That'd be super helpful. And if I do that, 
they're more than happy to help with that because for me to get visuals for all 45 of my kiddos at five different schools, it can be a challenge to tackle all of that. So when it comes to that type of visual, I tend to lean a lot on my case carriers and my speech pathologists because they're so quick about it and much more efficient than I would be. When it comes to my own lessons for, let's say I do stations a lot. So every time I do stations, I print up station signs. And those visuals are huge for my students in terms of being able to independently access the class in order to not be overstimulated by the fact that I love to talk. (laughs) And I think that my verbal output might seem like verbal vomit to them sometimes. And it might be overwhelming. So I can tell them, go to your station and get started. And that just helps everything go smoothly. It always has a title. It always has a picture depicting either what they're doing, the equipment they're going to be using. I try to use Google images for this, but sometimes they're less helpful (laughs) than I'd like it to be. So I tend to take pictures of myself at times doing the activity so that then they see a better representation as a visual. And then I do usually a one to two sentence explanation of what they're going to be doing at that station. And those station signs are huge because it not only helps my students, it helps the instructional aides that come out because they're not experts in our content. They can look at those signs and pretty much know what to do. And it also helps facilitate with Unify PE because again, I can send them all out and that just helps all of them access what they're supposed to be doing better. So I love those kinds of visuals that cut out the need for me to be talking so much and getting so much whole group instruction where it kind of allows them to independently access what the activity is. I know, isn't there? And I, there's been days where I haven't knocked my visual game out of the park and maybe I've, I'm a little shorthanded and it, it really can be a stark contrast in how good your lesson goes. It's it's pretty, <laughs> pretty eye-opening, quite truthfully. It is, I agree. And if I ever, God forbid, do stations without those station signs, the kids will all call me on it. They'll be like, Mrs. G, where are my signs? <laughs> Yeah, the kids know better than us sometimes. Yeah. (laughs) Building off of that, uh, and I know you're active in some professional organizations, but where would you tell listeners to go to stay up to date on best practices for our field? Oh, gosh. I'm a firm believer in going to conferences and workshops. I feel like for us to be good teachers, we should never be done learning, ever. I think that that's one of the biggest disservices we could do is to just think that we're, we're good. We got it all figured out. So I always attend the National Adapted PE Conference, NAPEC, which is held in California every year. So I recognize that does make it easier for me to go. (laughs) But it is going to be held in Burbank, I believe, this coming November. Uh, That's a really great conference. It is Adapted PE specific. It is full of amazing educators with great ideas, and it also provides opportunities. They have things like, they call I forget what they call it, but it's basically where you can show up and everybody just chit-chats about a topic. I was in one about specially designed PE this last year that was fascinating because we kind of came out of that figuring out that nobody really knows what that's supposed to look like. <laughs> um, but it was... it. It's just a really great opportunity to surround yourself with people who are passionate about the same thing and who want to do it as best we can. That's a really great one. I also attend my state conference, so the Caper Conference. I love it because it is all content areas under that umbrella of physical education where we have dance and 
We have, you know, health and PE and adaptive PE all at one conference, which I love. And I think that's great. I also do more smaller ones. So there's in California, there's something called EPEW. It's the elementary physical education workshop. And in the past, it's been up at Cal Poly Slow, I think. And then now it just moved to Cal Poly Pomona this last summer. That was a really great one. I did that one for the first time this summer, which was super cool. Again, just surrounding yourself with knowledge. You know, I I think I come from a very different experience than you. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But being the only one, I don't have colleagues. Thankfully, now I have a part-time colleague. <laughs> That's like way more than I've ever had before, which is exciting. But in the years past, it was just me. So I really relied on going to conferences and workshops like that to help provide me with information, ideas, to talk things out. I just think that there's no limit to how many of those I will go to if I'm allowed, because it's so great. I always come, it feels like my cup has been filled. I have new ideas. I have better direction on the rights and wrongs and the ins and outs of things. Cause usually there's always information about legal issues and things like that. I just, I love, love, love conferences and workshops. I mean, and Twitter is great too. Don't get me wrong. I use social media all the time. I think Twitter has been an incredible resource. I resisted Twitter for such a long time. I don't know why, but now that I'm on it, it's, I mean, it's just, it's an idea factory, you know, people are just sharing such great information and ideas. So I love using that kind of stuff too. You were a little bit modest there because I believe you were also a NAPEC keynote speaker, correct? <laughs> yes, I was yeah. the keynote speaker last year. <laughs> which is which is awesome. So good for you. I actually had that honor when it was in San Diego myself, and it's a really cool experience to be able to speak to your peers. But I, one thing I wanted to talk about is, and I saw you post on Twitter, is you recently went to D.C., I think, with Shape America, right? And you spoke to people in Congress. And can you maybe tell the listeners what that was all about? Yeah, that was really cool. I'm really excited that I was able to do that and that that was something I just bit the bullet and did. So Shape America has a an advocacy day called Speak Out Day. And what they do is teachers and educators from all across the country get together in Washington, D.C., and we meet with our local representatives to advocate for health and physical education in schools. So basically what happened for me was I arrived, there were four of us there representing California, and we had meetings with our two senators and with three members of the House. And so we were talking to them about... Basically, we wanted them to say they would support funding and further funding for Title II and Title IV Part A. So Title II funding really looks at funds that we would use for professional development. So for things that we were talking about, being able to send teachers to conferences and workshops and things like that so that we can further perfect our craft. And I think in terms of physical education... I don't want to assume everybody's district is the same, but my district PD days don't apply to me. It's not usually things that are super useful in the world of adapted PE. So my district is able to access those Title II funds so that they can send me to things like NAPEC and the CAFER conference and things like that so that I can actually get beneficial professional development. And then the Title IV is really, uh, Title IV Part A is things that 
funding that helps the whole child education. So we're looking at not just the core curriculum, math, reading, science, things like that. It's physical education is listed in there too. So that's how in our district, California is weird because we have the LPACs, but our LPAC funds fund our paraprofessionals in our elementary PE program. So that's huge where we can have an elementary PE program because we have the amount of support for the entire grade level to be out there at one time, which is usually 60 to 90 kids at once. So that only happens when we have those paraprofessionals and those funds go towards that. So basically getting our members of the Senate and the House to endorse or to support their funding for those items is going to help benefit all of our kids in terms of accessing health and physical education. So we got to have conversations with their offices and be on Capitol Hill, which was insanely cool. And I just learned a lot. I think being from a small district, maybe kind of, I don't have the understanding and the knowledge of how all of that works, even at my district level, much less the state level, and then the federal level, it was just really cool to have that opportunity to be with all of those educators from across the country and learning as much as we did. It was really, really neat. I enjoyed following along on Twitter. It was really cool. All right, moving on to, uh, so we call this our fast five. So these will hopefully be the easiest questions you've had today that (laughs) you just, you can give as quick or as long of an answer as you want, but they're kind of just meant to be what comes to top of mind for you. So the first in our fast five, what's your favorite piece of equipment? Uh, I think when I look at my equipment, because I travel around to all the sites, one of the things I never have access to is a net, but I have this portable net system that breaks down and goes in a bag and it's not so heavy that I can't carry it. And it's from Gopher. It's, it's a, I forget what they call it, but it's a portable net system. And I love it because I use it as a low net for tennis and pickleball, or I use it for a high net for volleyball. So I use it all the time. I am right. That's a great piece of equipment. I have one of those myself. I also have just a pickleball one, which for even if you sit the kids down, it can become a volleyball net. Next up, and we've talked about how maybe it's a, it's hard for us to infuse technology into our lessons, given that we live in this part of the country. But what is your favorite app to use when you're teaching? It's actually one that I've started using the last couple of years. It's called the Exercise Buddy app. It is it is one that you have to purchase licenses for. So it is something that I had to kind of build a case with my district to purchase for my students. But I use it with my secondary kids. And it's an evidence-based app that uses visuals to basically more effectively get our students, especially with autism, to engage in exercise. And it's awesome. It data tracks for me. It does, it, it does a lot. I actually used it this morning with my junior high group and it's, it's been a really cool tool. I can create my own workouts. I can use my own visuals or I can use the ones that they have already in their system, but it's, it's definitely been something that I've enjoyed plugging into my, to my classes, especially when we do fitness. And how many licenses did you need to buy to make that functional for how you teach? So I have a license for every one of my secondary students. So I want to say I have 20, 21. That's a pretty ambitious pitch to your department, quite honestly. So are your, your district? That's, that's pretty impressive. And I will say that one of the main ways that it works, because we all know how much district offices and admin love data, the fact that it's research based 
list and there's lots of, they have tons of information. If you talk to their company and you're interested in it, but you think you might get pushback because of the price, get information on all of the research and the data that they have on how effective it is. And the fact that it tracks data for you, it's also going to build a data stream to track your students' progress on things. So anytime you can use data in (laughs) pitching something, do it. What is your best teaching purchase under $100? I mentioned earlier, I use stations a lot. And so I use those sign holders that go on top of the cones. They're from Gopher. They're their smart doc sign holders, I think is what they're called. One of them is under $100. (laughs) I want to say that they come in individuals or like a set of six. The set of six is not under $100. But I want to say that it's like 40 bucks for one. So I just kind of slowly built my my set year after year, I just get a couple and um, build it, but it's awesome because it holds all my visuals for class. So I love that. Do you get a set budget per year or do you have to go beg, scratch, shake the couch cushions out? So I don't want to say this too loud. (laughs) I don't have a specific number budget. I'm very smart about what I do and don't ask for and when I ask for it. And I pretty much just don't get told no very much. So you, you don't abuse it, it sounds like, either, though. Correct. Know? Right. Correct. You don't, you're if not I'm, going to the well every time looking for, like, rollerblades and bikes for rollerblade and bike units, you know? Exactly. And if I do have a big ask, I make sure to really do some research and get a proposal together to make it legit and not just, like, I'm taking it for granted that I'm asking for something big. So I, I play the game the right way, I feel like. But my district is also really supportive because I, for so long, I've been the only one. So, and I'm servicing every school except for this last year. So it, they've been very supportive, which is lovely. That is great. One thing in your teaching bag that you just can't live without. Oh, my iPad. <laughs> I really think from the fact that I do attendance, I answer emails. I take narrative notes after every session on it. I used to track data, but I don't now. And I also use it to play music during all of my lessons. I use it to support my students. If I need to look up a visual really fast, I can just do it on my iPad and show them. So I I really feel like my iPad is one of those things that I, if I ever leave home without that, it's going to be a rough day. <laughs> Would you say you use it more than like a laptop computer? I wouldn't say I use it more, but so my laptop, it just stays in my office, okay. right? But my laptop or, but my iPad comes with me to all my sites. So it's really, and I, I bought myself a Bluetooth keyboard to make mm-hmm. it easier for me to take notes and do all that stuff. So it's kind of like my little mini laptop after I do that. I get it. Very cool. Mm-hmm. And the last one asking you to go a little more philosophical and deep here. What is the best piece of advice you'd give another teacher? Never stop learning. Never stop trying to learn more, trying to expose yourself to things that you're not already doing. Never settle. I feel like I I can't tell teachers that enough. I feel like I get a lot of future professionals that do a lot of their hours observing my classes and they'll ask me a lot of things like, oh, what would you suggest or what are your tips? And I just tell them, I go, don't stop learning. You guys are going to get so much knowledge right now before you're in the field. But then after you're teaching, keep learning because then you can take it directly from when you learn it into your class for your students. So I just think that whenever we can have the opportunities to learn and grow as teachers, we need to take it. 
I don't think I could say it any better myself. And I think that's a, a great place to end. But before I let you go, Kasha, I want people to know where they can find you to see all the incredible work you're doing. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and on Instagram. I am, my handle is APE underscore Mrs. G. And for, you can find for both? me for both. Yes. It's okay. the same. Mm-hmm. And you can find me there. <laughs> and Sometimes I'm better at posting than others because it's been a little extra crazy this year, but you can definitely check out some of the fun stuff I do and especially about Unified PE. So if you're curious about activities and things that work well with Unified, I do a lot on there. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining the show. Thank you for having me.